This evening, we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Job. With this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Job chapter 10. And as you make your way to the 10th chapter of Job, well, I want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that the bulk of this book is centered around the suffering of a man named Job. And I'll I'll remind you, it was back in the beginning of this book. Well, that's when we learned about the day when the sons and the daughters of this God-fearing man, they all perished in a horrific windstorm. And on the same day, that's when his oxen and his donkeys, they were all stolen by a band of raiders. Then fire fell from the sky and burned up his sheep and also many of his servants. Shortly thereafter, Job's health began to deteriorate after being struck with painful boils from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. And if all this wasn't bad enough, well, his wife encouraged him to simply curse God and die. And, and then, after that, his friends showed up who you know, said they were coming to comfort him, but then soon started to accuse him of living in sin and therefore being uh, someone who deserved the punishment of God. Well, in response to their accusations, Job decided to defend his integrity as a God-fearing man. And in the midst of his defense, we find Job, he's continuing to wrestle with you know, questions that he had. And these questions were really loaded with accusations driven by misconceptions about God, his plans, and his purposes. And you see, Job was wrestling with questions regarding why God was pouring out this punishment upon him, you know, knowing that he had you know, done his best to offer the proper sacrifices and to maintain a close connection with, with the Lord. And so you know, Job was really struggling with why he was suffering in this way and why God was punishing him. And, and, and all the while, he was failing to realize that it wasn't the Lord that was causing him to suffer. No, his suffering had actually been caused by Satan and not by the Lord of glory. It's in similar fashion that I'm sure that we've all wrestled with difficult situations in which we start asking God, why are you, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this? Why am I going through this? I'm sure we've all been in situations that have led us to create loaded questions about the plans and the purposes of God. And I'm guessing that most of us have at some point in time wondered why God has allowed evil to befall us, all the while failing to realize that the purposes and the plans of God are always good. And and yeah, even when we feel like our pain is entirely unfair or our suffering is completely undeserved, Even in those moments, God's plans and purposes are perfect. Even when we don't like what God is allowing or even what God might be causing, he still has a perfect plan. And it's something that we have to realize, and especially when it comes to this issue of complaining. Now, with that, I want to consider more of the complaints and the loaded questions that came from the mouth of Job. And if you would, look with me here at Job chapter 10. I want to begin reading there at verse 1, because here we find Job crying out, My soul loathes my life. I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. 
Now here in the first verse of this chapter, we find Job, he's confessing his complaints. He's saying, yeah, I'm, I'm complaining. I'm complaining. And listen, if anybody had cause for complaining, it most certainly was Job. You know, if anybody had a reason to hate their life, it was Job, as we consider everything that he went through, the loss of his kids, you know, the, the loss of his wealth, the loss of his health. You know, Job, if anybody, had cause for complaint. And with that being the case, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that Job felt justified. He felt justified in expressing his complaints that had been simmering in his soul. In similar fashion, there are many Christians who also feel justified in their constant complaining. They complain about their job, and they complain about their boss, and they complain about their friends, and they complain about their family. They complain about the summer heat, and then they come here and complain about the air conditioning. It's just everything is just a reason for complaining. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, most of us have never been through the sort of suffering that Job was enduring, and yet, you know, we stub our toe and we complain, and, you know, we get a hangnail and we complain, and everything's a cause for complaint. Without debate, it's easy for us to feel like we're free to share our complaints with everyone and everything. Like, I'm just being real here, you know. Like, I'm just being honest. I'm just, you know, uh, you're complaining. But do we really have the liberty to complain? Like, if this, is this really part of our liberty in the Lord to be complainers? Or, or are we possibly sinning when we engage in constant complaining? But this question of mine, I encourage you to consider something that Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2. It's verses 14 through 16. Here Paul declares this. Do all things without complaining and disputing. That you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Christian, listen, we've been called to curb our complaints. We've been called to curb our complaints so that we can become blameless believers. That's right, we've been called to, be, to become blameless believers who are getting a hold of, of those thoughts, those 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 thoughts that would lead us to complain, that we, that we get a hold of those thoughts and stop them from manifesting into verbal complaints. Now, you know, I'm someone who is prone to complaining. I love to complain about complainers. I, you know, I think complainers are just the worst, you know, and, and, and so, you know, I am one of those people. I am prone to complain, and, and it's crucial for... Christians like myself to realize that our complaints are really just mental cancer spreading into the minds of those who hear our complaints. When we complain to other people, those complaints go into their mind, and next thing you know, they're complaining about the same thing, and 
Next thing you know, there's just a bunch of people who are all complaining about the same thing. It's just like, you know, complaints spread like cancer cells. As we consider how the church is the body of Christ, well, the complaining Christian is functioning in the body like a cancer cell. And as they openly share their complaints with others, they're spreading their cancerous complaints throughout the rest of the body. That being the case, you know, Paul encouraged us to do all things. He didn't say do some things. He said do all things without complaining and without disputing. Now with this as the goal, it's important for us to realize that many of our complaints are based on limited information, even misconceptions. And to prove my point, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 10 Here we find Job continuing to try to justify his complaints. And if you would look with me there beginning at verse 2, because here Job declares here, I will say to God, do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. Wow. Here's Job saying, I've got got something to say to God. I've got got a bone to pick with God. And I'm going to say to him, don't condemn me. Why are you contending with me? And, and, and it's here in this verse where we learn that Job's complaints were based on two basic misconceptions. First of all, Job truly believed that God was the one condemning him. Now we know since chapter 1 that this, this was not a punishment of God, but rather an attack of the enemy. But Job truly believed that God was the one who was condemning him. And that word condemn, it speaks of those who are chastised as being guilty of wickedness. And so Job uh, Job here had uh, incorrectly come to the conclusion that the Lord was condemning him as a man who was guilty of walking in unrepentant wickedness. Secondly, he also believed that God was contending with him. Now that word contend, which is found there in verse 2, It's translated from a Hebrew word which was used of those who file a legal complaint against the accused. In light of this definition, we can be certain here that Job was incorrect on on both accusations here. He was wrong to assume that the Lord was contending with him, and he was wrong to believe that the Lord was condemning him. The Lord was neither condemning Job nor was he contending with him. No, instead, the Lord had simply allowed the enemy to test the integrity of Job's faith. What this means is that the basis for all of Job's complaints were completely incorrect. It was at best just a misconception of God's role in the suffering that he was enduring. With that being the case, all of the complaint-based questions that we're about to read, all of the complaint-based questions that Joe poses here in our text tonight, they were all preloaded with this misconception that God was condemning him and contending with him. Now with that, I want to now zero in on some of these questions. And so let's continue to consider the complaints that Joe presents here in Job chapter 10. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 3. Here Job launches into a series of questions by first asking this. He says, Does it seem good to you that you should oppress, that you should despise the work of your hands and smile on the counsel of the wicked? 
Now here in this verse we find Job, he's presenting God with this first loaded question. And, and this loaded question was based on the belief that God was condemning him and God was contending with him. And so as we take a closer look at this question here, we can see that Job is now wondering what could God possibly gain from the suffering of his servant? Again, he asks, does it seem good to you that you should oppress? Was God the one oppressing Job? No. And yet, Job is convinced that God is the one who's oppressing him. He asks, you know, does it seem good to you? Or what are, what, what are you benefiting from despising the very work of your hands? Job is going to elaborate on this, you know, in verses to come. But then he asks, you know, why, why are you, you know, or does it seem good to you to smile on the counsel of the wicked? Job was wondering, why are you allowing the wicked to prosper while allowing your servant to suffer? Anybody ever have that complaint? Why does God allow wicked people to get ahead in life? Why does God allow wicked people to cash in to make millions and billions of dollars while allowing his servants to suffer? And if we begin to wonder these things, if we begin to ask these sorts of questions, if we begin to accuse God of doing something wrong, well, it only furthers our skewed perspective of God's plans and purposes, which then causes us to continue going down this slippery slope until we're fully accusing God of evil. With that, I want to continue to consider the way that Job clarifies this first question. And he does this by presenting four more questions, which stem from the same misconception. And if you would look with me there, we'll pick up our study of Job 10 at verse 4. Here Job asks, Do you have eyes of flesh? Or do you see as a man sees? Are your days like the days of a mortal man? Are your years like the days of a mighty man? That you should seek for my iniquity, and search out my sin, although you know that I am not wicked, and there is no one who can deliver from your hand. Now, here in these verses, we find Job, he's firing off four questions now, which were also based on his belief that the eyes of God were not limited like the eyes of mortal men. These are rhetorical questions. Do you have the eyes of flesh? The obvious answer is no. Do you see as man sees? In other words, you know, aren't, aren't, aren't you able to see everything? Ma- mankind is limited in what we're able to see. You know, I can see your actions, but I can't see your heart. I don't know what's driving the actions. And, you know, oftentimes we assume the worst about a person. Sometimes we believe, we believe the best about them, so that even though they may have done something that, you know, uh, you know, we would consider to be wrong, you know, we can say, well, they had the right intentions. And, you know, so we can try to understand where people are coming from, but God doesn't have to guess about these things. God can see all of our actions, and not only that, but he's able to see all the motivations for those actions. And Job here, in asking these rhetorical questions, is saying, come on, God, you know what's in my heart. Job was also certain that the Lord could see that he was a God-fearing man. And we know that he was because God already told us that. 
It's back in the first chapter of this book where, where we learn that, that God called Job you know, a God-fearing man. It's for this reason that Job is wrestling with this question of why God was condemning him and contending with him, knowing that he had gone out of his way to do everything that he was supposed to do in order to maintain some level of limited atonement through a sacrificial system. And so he's basically asking, you know, God, I, I, I know you can see everything. I, I, know, I know you can see what's in my heart. So why are you condemning me? Why are you contending with me in this way? In order to further grasp his misconception, let's consider the next two questions that Job presents here in our text tonight. If you would look with me there, we'll pick up our study of Job chapter 10 at verse 8. Here Job goes, goes on to declare this. He says, your hands have made me and fashioned me an intricate unity, yet you would destroy me. Remember, I pray, that you have made me like clay, and will you turn me into dust again? Here in these verses we find Job, he's wrestling with a question about the, the, the reason for his existence. He's asking, why did you take the time to create me if your only plan is to turn around and destroy me. In other words, Job here was struggling to understand why our infinite creator would take the time to create us if his ultimate purpose is simply to condemn and contend with the people that he creates. Now as we consider Job's question, I can't help but to remember a challenge that Paul presents in Romans chapter 9. It's verses 20 and 21 where Paul asks this, Paul says, Indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Christian, listen, before you start wrestling with questions about the trials and the troubles that the Lord has allowed into your life or the punishments that he might impose upon you or, or the blessings that he might pour out on somebody else, and before you start getting into all these questions about, well, why, God, why would you create me only to punish me or only to, to allow these things to happen to me? Listen, before you start going down that whole line, we would do well to remember he is the potter we are the clay. Plain and simple. He's the potter. He's the creator. We're the clay. Therefore, every complaint against our creator is like a lump of clay looking up at the potter saying, oh, you're going to spin me on a wheel, are you? What, what do you know about it? Why are you doing it like this? Why aren't you using more water? Why aren't you using less water? How, how ridiculous would that be if you're the potter and you're working this clay and all of a sudden the clay starts questioning everything you're doing? How silly is that? Listen, whenever we find ourselves grumbling against God, we do well to remember that his plans and purposes are always perfect and without fail. Therefore, if we have a problem with the way the potter's going about it, uh, we do well to change our perspective because if, if, if we're questioning the potter, guess who's wrong? It's not the potter, it's the clay. 
So we need to change our perspective if we find ourselves questioning the potter. And listen, the best way to do this is by prayerfully asking the Lord to help us to have a humble faith that truly trusts in his providential plan. To recognize that we have finite brains that can't see everything. God sees all things and knows how to work all things together for our good. So in the midst of a trial or tribulation, how do you know if it's a good or a bad thing? Listen, just because you don't like something doesn't make it evil. Just because you don't like your situation doesn't mean it's wrong. And what do you know about it anyway? All you know is, I don't like this. Listen, I don't like salad, but it's supposedly good for me. I haven't proven it with science yet, but there's a lot of things we don't like, and yet they're good for us. And so we'd be we'd be doing, you know. Let me just say it like this: that it would be good for us to recognize that we don't have all the answers, but God does. And he's perfect. And so we can trust his perfect plan, but that takes humility on our part. With this as the goal, I want to continue to consider the complaints of Job. If you would look with me here at Job chapter 10. and I want to pick up our study beginning at verse 10 because here Job goes on to ask this. He says, Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? Clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and favor, and your care has preserved my spirit. Now, I want to stop right here, because here in these verses, we find Job, he's comparing God now to a cheesemaker. Before, you know, God was a potter. Now, God is like a cheesemaker, and mankind being the cheese. Listen, it's for this reason that I'm trying to be the cheesiest Christian I can, according to God's will. Seriously, though, you know, if God is the cheese maker, then why does he find fault with the cheese he makes? You know, if you, if you create, you know, something of, of a stinky cheese, and then when you're done, you sniff it, and you're just kind of like, oh, this cheese is horrible, it stinks. Yeah, you made the cheese. And listen, when you cut the cheese and you smell the... I didn't mean it like that. I mean, you guys are dirty. If God is the cheesemaker, then why does he find fault with the cheese he makes? That's what Job is wondering here. Listen, I, I, I struggle with, with a similar question here. You know, if, if God is the one who forms us in the womb and if God is the one who places us here in this world and God is the one who imputes the sin of Adam to all of his progeny, why does he find fault with us? I didn't ask to be born in sin. And yet it comes back to the clay asking the potter, hey, what's up with this? 
I rejoice in knowing that God has imputed the sin of Adam to the rest of us, making us all stinky cheese. Because he then turned around and in his economy sent Jesus Christ to represent us on the cross so that he could impute the righteousness of Jesus Christ to us so that we could be saved. It's a perfect plan. And yet in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our trials and tribulations, you know, we start asking God, what's, what's his problem? Not, not what's our problem? No. Not why did I do these sins that brought on these ramifications and have placed me into this situation? Not, that's not the question. We're asking what's God's problem? We do well to be humble enough to be the kind of cheese that recognizes that the cheesemaker knows what he's doing. Job continues to build, though, upon his complaint. So, and so now we're complaint upon complaint upon complaint, and he continues with this complaint, which we find here in Job 10, verse 13. Here he declares this, And these things you have hidden in your heart, I know that this was with you. If I sin, then you mark me, and will not acquit me of my iniquity. If I am wicked, woe to me. Even if I am righteous, I cannot lift up my head. I am full of disgrace. See my misery. Simply put, Job was effectively saying, I'm doomed if I do what's right, and I'm doomed if I do what's wrong. And in the midst of his complaining, you know, Job is beginning to believe that the God who continues to condemn him and continues to contend with him, according to his perspective, that the same God will never provide him with a way to be acquitted of his sins. That's what he's thinking now. That if God's going to continue to condemn me and continue to contend with me, then there will never be an opportunity to be acquitted of the sins I'm actually guilty of. And so I'm doomed if I do, and I'm doomed if I don't. And rather than rejoicing in the grace of God by which we can be acquitted of our sins, Job felt like he had been disgraced in the sight of the Lord, and he came to a place where he's thinking, it'll never change. This will always be my circumstance and situation. In order to further grasp his perspective, let's continue to consider Job's complaints here in Job chapter 10. Uh, let's pick up our study at beginning at verse 16, because here he goes on to declare, If my head is exalted, you hunt me like a fierce lion. And again, you show yourself awesome against me. You renew your witnesses against me and increase your indignation toward me. Changes and war are ever with me. Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Oh, that I had perished, and no eye had seen me. I would, have been as, I would have been as though I had not been. I would have been carried from the womb to the grave. Now here in these verses, you know, we find Job here, he's once again wondering about the reason for being born. And we saw this earlier on in the book where he's just, you know, he's so disappointed with life that he wished he'd never been born. And here, so we're back at that again. And, and rather than enjoying a real relationship with his Redeemer, he felt like he was constantly at war with the Lord. He felt like he was constantly at war with the Lord. And instead of worshiping the Lord with a humble heart, Job was wrestling with this wrong perspective about his creator. 
And it was from that incorrect perspective that he's just now stewing in bitterness. And not only that, but he's got these three friends who, who came to comfort him, but they've got some concerns about him. And rather than enjoying the companionship of good friends who traveled a great distance to come be, uh, by his side in this time of need, you know, he was coming to the conclusion that the Lord sent them just to bear witness against him. That, that's why he asks there in verse 17, you renew your witnesses against me. I think that he's speaking about these friends of his, that they were bearing witness against him. And while it's true that his friends also had the wrong perspective about the reason for his suffering, Job was simply making things worse by believing the worst about them. They were all believing the worst about one another. His three friends thought that he was living in secret sin, and he thought that God sent them to come and tear him down and testify against him and With all this in mind, it's important to understand that when our perspective about God is wrong, our perspective about everything else is going to be wrong as well. When our perspective about God is wrong, our perspective about everything and everyone is also wrong. It's skewed. And as a result, those who are upset with God will oftentimes be upset with everybody. When we're at war with God, we're at war with everybody else. And it's for this reason that the believer who is upset with God about the situation that they find themselves in will oftentimes spend a lot of their time complaining about the Christians who are trying to encourage them to get back on the right path with God. And it's one reason why so many Christians can't receive a rebuke. They can't accept a challenge from another believer. Why? Well, because they have the wrong perspective about God. And so they can't hear it from someone who comes and challenges them about it. And it's sad to say that, you know, there's a lot of times when a a Christian who ends up being challenged by a close friend or or a confidant in the church, you know, rather than receiving it, they turn around and start complaining about that person. Because it's easier to complain about the person who challenged them than it is to actually consider the possibility that the challenge was correct. If this sounds like something that you often struggle with, I encourage you to remember what James said. It's actually in James chapter 5. It's verse 9 where James says this, Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold the judge is standing at the door. Wow. I can't stand James. Just, what is wrong with him? All right, I'm not going to sit here and grumble against James because the judge is at the door, right? We're not supposed to grumble against one another. The people of God shouldn't be grumbling about one another. Listen, if you're struggling and you find yourself surrounded by believers who, like Job's friends here, are presenting you with counsel that might be hard to hear and possibly even incorrect, still I encourage you to walk in love by, by believing the best about them. If someone comes to me and offers me counsel that I find to be incorrect, 
it, it gives me a greater love for that person. Because whether I agree with the counsel or not, whether I think it's biblical or not, or whether it's you know, something that truly applies to the situation or not, they at least cared for me enough to come and challenge me. And that's really how we ought to treat this. You know, rather, you know, rather than Job complaining and grumbling about these three guys who traveled a great distance to come and, and sit by his side and try to comfort him, but also try to get him back on track with the Lord. And, you know, Job could have seen this and just thought, man, these guys, they care. For, I don't agree with them, but at least they care for me. They went out of their way to come alongside of me. But no, instead, he accuses them of being, you know, witnesses that God sent to testify against him. So even in this chapter, we find him, Job, grumbling against his friends, and we definitely don't need to follow in, in, in that example. We shouldn't grumble against one another. Lest, according to James, we be condemned. We ought to walk in the love of the Lord, believing the best about those people who come and care for us and try to comfort us and even challenge us. We ought to believe the best about them, thinking the best about them, thinking the best thoughts about them, assuming the best motives are in their hearts. And, And with this mindset, then we can refrain our lips from grumbling against them. Finally, it's important for us to remember that an incorrect perspective about God will always leave us feeling hopeless and helpless. And with this as our focus, let's pick up our study of John chapter 10. Let's begin reading at verse 20. Here Job asks, Are not my days few? Cease, leave me alone, that I may take a little comfort before I go to the place from which I shall not return. To the land of darkness and the shadow of death. A land as dark as darkness itself. As the shadow of death without any order. Where even the light is like darkness. Man, I I just feel like I'm reading lyrics from Morsi here or something. Like, Is this like the cure? Job here is asking the Lord to just leave him alone. He just wanted to to die in peace. The reason why is due to the fact that Job had come to to the conclusion here that his creator was only interested in condemning him. His, His creator was only interested in contending with him. And if that's the relationship that God wants to have with him, he'd rather not have a relationship with God. And with this as his perspective, he incorrectly comes to the conclusion that it would just be better to dwell in eternal darkness than to continue suffering in the way that he had been suffering. And listen, as we consider Job's perspective, it's important for us to remember that he didn't have the books of the Bible that we now enjoy today. He didn't have these books. And so, you know, let's not fault him for his incorrect theology regarding the afterlife. At the same time, though, we must not fail to realize that Job provides us with a perfect picture of the way in which a skewed perspective of God will end up leaving us feeling hopeless and helpless. If we don't have a proper perspective of God, 
which includes you know, his plans and purposes for us, when our perspective is skewed about his plans and purposes, you know, we, we end up feeling lost and hopeless and helpless and, and much like Job. And one reason for this is because, listen, a, a distorted perspective of God will lead us to think that God's always looking for every opportunity to, to just punish us. I'm guessing there may be some here tonight who just, you're always concerned because you think that God is just, just waiting for you to mess up one more time and squish, you're dead. And it's just like every day you're just walking on eggshells because you just think God just is just waiting to get you. And yet this is the God who says, hey, I know the thoughts that I have for you. I know the desires that I have for you to give you a future and a hope. We have a God who has incredible plans for us and a wonderful purpose for us. But the minute that gets skewed and that perspective begins to get, get twisted, you know, we start wondering what it's all about. We start struggling with every little trial and tribulation that comes our way. We start thinking that God's out to get us. Christian, listen, the, the Lord has a perfect plan for us. And his purposes for us are good. And he's promised to work all things together for the good of those who love him. Therefore, when we find ourselves suffering the trials and the troubles of this world, don't, don't get upset with God. Don't, don't get your perspective twisted in, in, as you begin to, to question his goodness or his love for you. Listen, the Lord wants you to learn how to lean on his supernatural strength. And so when we find ourselves in the middle of, of a tough trial or, or some sort of situation that causes us suffering, listen, this is, this is a red flag for us to get back to the Lord as quickly as possible, for, for us to, to lean into the Lord and seek his strength. Let me, let me speak to you as clay might speak to other clay. Before the fire, all clay is soft and squishy. It has to be placed into the fire. It has to go into the kiln for it to be strengthened and then useful for the potter. The potter places us in the kiln in order to strengthen our clay so that we can become vessels that He's created us to be. Unbaked clay that complains about the potter's plan, you know, to place us in the fiery kiln. Well, that unbaked clay is actually complaining about the perfect plan of the potter. Does anybody want to, you know, actually go into the fiery kiln where we're experiencing trials and troubles? No, no. Nobody wants that. We'd rather stay soft and squishy, you know, pre-fire. And yet the Lord has a perfect plan even in the kiln. It's for this reason that I encourage you to turn every complaint into a prayer. 
Listen, we, we all have complaints. We all have things that we love to complain about, and yet the best thing that we can do is turn our complaints into prayers. This reminds me of the prayer that David presented as he hid from Saul in the cave of Adullam. It's in the 142nd Psalm where David prays this. He says, I cry out to the Lord with my voice. With my voice to the Lord, I make supplication. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path. In the way in which I walk, they have secretly set a snare for me. Look on my right hand and see, for there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. I cried out to you, O Lord, and I said, you are my refuge. My portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise your name. The righteous shall surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. Here in this psalm, we learn about the way in which David turned his complaints into prayer. He saw his complaints as a reason to go to the Lord, the one who can truly provide us with refuge. And in light of his example here, I believe that we would all do well to prayerfully present our complaints to the Lord. Don't go spreading your complaints around like cancer. No, take those complaints straight to the Lord and allow him to deal with it. Let's prayerfully present our complaints to the Lord all the while realizing that he's the one who truly cares for us. I like the way that the Apostle Peter put it in 1 Peter chapter 5. It's verses 6 and 7 where he declares this. He says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Rather than spreading our complaints into the minds of others like mental cancer, Let's cast our cares on the Lord, all the while trusting that the plans of the potter are perfect. And listen, not only are the plans of the potter perfect, but I want to remind you that we also have a high priest who is able to sympathize with all of our struggles. This was precisely the point that Paul was making in Hebrews chapter 4. There he declares this, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Christian, listen, the Lord is able to sympathize with us. And the reason why is because he himself was tempted in all the same ways that we're tempted. As a matter of fact, it was during the days of his incarnation when the Logos of God experienced the same trials and the same troubles that we experience, and yet he experienced those trials and and tribulations and temptations. He did it without sinning. He remained sinless, though he has experienced all the same temptations that we've experienced. And now that he's risen from the dead, now that he's ascended into heaven, he has become our heavenly high priest who invites us to come before his throne of grace. And as we approach the throne of grace, he's there 
ready to provide us with the mercy and the grace that we need. And so listen, the Christian who chooses to just walk around sharing their complaints with everybody, they don't get the help that they actually need. No, they're just spreading cancer through the body of Christ. But the Christian who will go to the throne room of grace and just take their complaints to the Lord and cast those cares at his feet, well, that's when we receive the mercy and we find the grace that we need to strengthen us through the trial or the tribulation. And as we do this, we should also be praying to our Savior that he might provide us with a proper perspective. That he might help us to have a proper perspective about the plans and the purposes of God so that we can see God in, in, in the right light. So that we can, you know, might, we might not be able to understand his plans and purposes and how it applies to our, to our struggle or, or our situation. And yet, with the proper perspective that leads us to, rem- to remember that God is perfect. And therefore, his plans and his purposes for us are perfect, even when we don't understand it. It's with that perspective that we can simply rest in the providence of our God realizing that he will work all things together for the good of those who love him. Let's go before the throne room of grace, bringing our complaints to Christ Jesus. And as we leave those complaints with Christ Jesus, he will help us to maintain a proper perspective so that we can have a right relationship with our Redeemer as well as with those who have been redeemed. Let's pray.